Welcome to Asian American Stories, our new podcast spotlighting Asian American entrepreneurs and leaders in Los Angeles. I'm Danica Lowe, and I'm here with my co-host, Andy Wong. Andy, who is our illustrious guest today? We have Ellen Chen, who is the co-founder of Mendocino Farms, but is also up to so many other things that we'll get into. But first, I should just bring up that Ellen is really one big reason that we're doing this podcast. She reached out to me about AAPILA, which is this new initiative started by the LA mayor's office, and she humbly asked if I'd be a part of it. And of course, I said yes. I said yes because, you know, I've known Ellen and her husband Mario for a while. For a while. I know the important work they've done in the restaurant industry, and I also know that they've been an advocate for the restaurant industry. And obviously, right now, it's important to raise awareness and find solutions at a moment when our API community is dealing with anti-Asian violence, when our greater restaurant community at large is struggling to keep their businesses solvent during this pandemic that, you know, feels like it's ending and then doesn't end and starts again, and just all the unpredictability of being in the restaurant business. And obviously, it's important to fight for equity in the workplace and beyond. So, you know, Ellen's a perfect person to be part of such an initiative. She and her husband, Mario Del Perro, are successful food entrepreneurs who started Sandwich Powerhouse Mendocino Farms, which turned into a business that now has more than 40 locations and Whole Foods invested in it. And then they later had a successful exit. And it's really one of those rare unicorn stories that other food entrepreneurs dream of. Which is why, to me, it's so inspiring and remarkable what they've chosen to do with their success. I mean, Ellen worked in consulting and at a marketing firm and at a dot-com startup before joining the restaurant business, but she still very much wants to be in the get-your-hands-dirty business of restaurants. Ellen and Mario are mentoring startup food businesses, mom-and-pop shops, chefs who don't even have restaurants yet but aspire to have one. So they're investing in food and restaurants and technology because that's what they do. So, you know, this is just one of those happy moments where you're with somebody who's conquered the game and wants to start playing again on the first square with the dice, ready to roll, saying, all right, what's going to happen next? So we're very happy to have Ellen today. Wow, what an intro. Thank you, Andy. Thank you, Danica, for having me. Um, I'm super honored to be here. And again, thank you for that incredible intro. I I feel really good about myself right now. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Um, but yeah, thank you for having me. I, I think this is a, you know, this is, uh, and I, I know we were talking about this earlier, food is such a great con- connection uh, for everybody. And when we're talking about topics like this, again, I think food really is something that feeds people's souls and really helps um, in, you know, difficult times, great times. And so I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Ellen, you have such an amazing background, such an amazing career history. But before we talk about all of that good stuff, let's go all the way to the beginning. And I would love to hear stories about your family in the United States and how many generations have you been here, your own memories from growing up as an Asian American, and just anything that stood out to you that led you down this path to where you are today? So I actually immigrated here when I was almost five years old. So we didn't come to America until 1977. 
And um, my parents came here. We moved into a little town up north called uh, Moraga. And I think like most immigrants, you go where your family is. We had no idea where we were going and we ended up there. Um, you know, and again, I think being where I grew up, it was predominantly very white. Um, and so I think, you know, it was a stereotypical Asians in a very white community and you're trying to assimilate. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because I think in these last, especially these last two years and everything that has been coming up, <clears throat> I really thought about my background and how it's impacted me today. I think when I was younger, I thought everything was okay because you do try to assimilate, you try to become very American and you almost forget about, you know, your other identity as being, I, I came from Taiwan. Um, but my parents, you know, they, they came here, my dad was an entrepreneur. So that's a little bit of where I think it fueled my entrepreneurial bug just from the very get go. And he was in manufacturing, also very blue collar. My dad is super brilliant, but he was, you know, the person who was like on the factory floor with his employees at all time. So there's so many great memories of my dad being an entrepreneur, but we would, um, he would come here one month, then he would go there and spend a month there and work. And then in the summers, we would go and spend the summers with my dad in Taiwan and my grandparents. And so most of my family, they're, half of them are still over in Taiwan. Some of them are here. Um, my parents are very traditional. They speak broken English and I speak Taiwanese with them. I mean, broken Taiwanese. Um, so, you know, it's, it was really interesting growing up because I was that kid where you would go to McDonald's. That was like our treat after Chinese school. And, you know, usually people are like, okay, looking at the parents to order. And then here's this little girl, like who can barely even look above the counter asking for like a Big Mac and an apple pie and a fish fillet. And they're like, huh? Um, and I just remember people would always look at us, you know, like, who are these people? Why is the little kid speaking for the parent? Um, but, you know, to me, I knew no different. Um, but, you know, those are just kind of like my memories. It's always us taking care of my parents, even though my parents were there to support us. Um, so it was a really different childhood than I think most of my friends, but I never shared that with them. You know, they just got to see what I wanted to share with them was this kind of like this perfect idyllic life. And I remember, you know, for me, I, in my class, I think there was only about 12 Asians. So I had the biggest Asian class, um, but everyone was super smart. So I was like the dumb Asian. You know, I wasn't good at that. It was like all the stereotypes. And I, um, you know, I just kind of blew it off. And I was like, okay, whatever. I, I'm, I'm still, I'm, I think I'm still going to be fine. But I remember my friends would tell me, gosh, you know, Ellen, you're, you're, you're not like them. You're, 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 you know, you're, you're, you're more like us. And I, you know, and it felt so weird. I think they were trying to compliment me. Like, you're so white. You're not like them. And now in retrospect, I look back and I don't know if you guys dealt with this. I'm offended. Like, you know, as I went to college, I was like, that was offensive. I wish I said something, but I didn't know how and I didn't have the voice to. Um, so, you know, I think it was very typical in going to college. I went to UC San Diego and all of a sudden I saw all these Asian people. And I, then I was like mesmerized. I was like, oh, my gosh, like there are like people like me. But it was interesting because they didn't really accept me either because they're like, you're so white, you know, you're not like us. And so I think there was always this conflict for myself as I look back of who am I and where did I come from? And I think we struggle with that. Um, I will have to say, definitely, I am very proud of who I am and where I came from. 
And as I've gotten older, and this is again why I think this is so, so important with what we're doing, to be able to have that you know, voice, to be represented and to be feel like we are part of this country and we belong here. So tell me a little bit about your career, but given that, you know, you're from, you know, that you came here when you were five and you're obviously from this Asian American family, there's just, this is a loaded question because I know there are a lot of expectations. So what did your family want you to do and how did you end up doing what you're doing and how did they feel about it? So I was fortunate enough where I didn't have super, super tiger parents. Uh, they always wanted me to do better and they wanted us, you know, to excel and they would make comments like most Asian, like, oh, you didn't get an A. Um, you know, you can do better than that. It's A minuses aren't A's. Uh, you know, they had me playing the violin, you know, it was everything typical, but they weren't like crazy, crazy about it. They did want me to, you know, do something. Well, important was have a career. And I think it's the usual doctor, lawyer, going to corporate America. But most importantly, they wanted me to get married and have kids. Again, very Asian, very female, uh-huh. you know, like for your for your daughters. Um, so, but, you know, I, I, for us, I actually had two sisters. And again, going back to, you know, I hate to you talk about like all these different things that are expected being Asians. My dad was expected and my mom was expected to have at least one son, right? There had to be a boy to carry on your family name and your legacy. And unfortunately, my dad did not. And so there was kind of shame for him that he had these three daughters. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm going to kick ass and I'm going to make my parents proud. And all those people who tell him, you know, daughters aren't great. You want to have a son. I want to prove them wrong. So there was always this fire in me that I had to do something. And I and I, and I don't mean great with like financial, but just something that makes an impact to make them proud. And so um, I knew I wasn't smart enough to be a doctor. I did not want to be a lawyer. And so I was like, I'm going to go into corporate America. If I want to be an entrepreneur, I want to learn about different businesses. And at that time, being a consultant was like the coolest thing to be, you know, when you graduated. And so I thought if I became a consultant, I could learn about different industries. I could learn about different industries and probably different departments within the industries to get a really good understanding about what it takes to build a business. And You know, again, I don't know if it's luck, if it's just how timing, but I, the first client that I um, was able to get assigned to was a startup. And it was a startup called Sprint PCS, which everyone knows, but literally it was like a handful of Sprint PCS people and then a bunch of consultants. And again, I was fortunate. I got to work almost every single department. I got to work really close with the CFO and got to see this cross cross-functional com- uh, uh, inside of a company and see it build. And so that's, you know, I, I really attribute a lot of my um, success or just what I've learned through that experience as a consultant. Um, and so, you know, I, I did that. And I think Andy, just like you said, I left to go into advertising. Then I went to, um, you know, it was the dot-com boom. And so everyone was going to work for startups and I, I, jumped on that. And uh, the company that I work for actually got acquired by Electronic Arts. And so I was able to take some time off. And that's when I started dating Mario. He already had a um, fast casual teriyaki concept called SKUs Beyond Teriyaki. And it was beyond its time because no one knew what teriyaki was in. Uh, but I, you know, I told him, I was like, hey, I love food. I love restaurants. I never was able to work in the restaurant industries because my parents 
would not let me do that. You know, you had to study, you had to play violin and you had to play tennis. And that's how I spent my time in going to Chinese school. Um, and so I go, this is the time that I get to do what I've always wanted to do. And uh, he's like, sure, come work. So, you know, I went to go work there, did, um, you know, register, line cook, prep cook, bathroom washer. I mean, you named it. I did everything and I loved it. You know, food again, just to be able to see how happy you can make people so quickly with food or so angry and then you could fix it. It was just such a gratifying thing to have a product that you could really make a difference in someone's life. And so I told him, I go, this is great. Like, do you want a business partner? I'll give you money, I'll invest, and then we can scale this. And so we were young and we're like, yes, let's do this. And then after store two, we opened up one more in Westwood. We decided that teriyaki was not scalable at that time because no one knew what it was. And we sold it um, and took that capital and started Mendocino Farms in 2005. So how did your parents feel about, because you said they didn't want you to work in restaurants when you were younger. How did they feel about this? Because you had been successful in corporate America, obviously. And it's not that you then went and worked for some big restaurant, because I'm sure it would have made more sense to them if you had whatever, yeah. gone to like work at Olive Garden or Red Lobster or something or something yeah. like that. Yeah. But this was an independent, literally get your hands dirty restaurant that yeah. you owned. Like, what did they tell you about the risk you were taking? Well, you know, I think I had proved to them for, you know, 10 years of my life working with corporate America that I had, I was able to achieve success. Um, and so I, I, I told them and they actually met Mario. So that was the important thing. The clincher was meeting Mario, who was my business partner, right? Because if he, they thought he was a total loser, they'd be like, no, no way. <laughs> you're not getting in bed with this guy, literally, I guess, um, and in business. And uh, somehow uh, he totally wooed them. You know, he's very charismatic. He's really smart. He's very creative. And, you know, we were able and we showed them through hard work, you know, as unscalable as Hughes was, we still had some success. Um, and I just told my parents, you know, I think they, they had the belief in the two of us, but they also realized that if it didn't work out, I could always go back to what I was doing. So there was somewhat of a safety net. Um, cause I'd already, you know, proved myself outside of the restaurant industry. Um, so I, you know, I, I, it's, and that's what I, you know, what I was saying earlier, they're not typical, um, tiger parents. They really, a big part, and this is why I love my parents. They want us to be happy. Um, and they just want us to be like good, you know, good people. And so, you know, they, they were willing to let me take that risk. And they've been very supportive. I mean, very, very supportive throughout my whole entire journey. So I want to ask you a little bit about the success of Mendocino because it is a unicorn from the business standpoint, but it also is a unicorn just from the food standpoint. Because if you go to somebody and you just say, here's my concept and my concept, I know I'm oversimplifying this. And my concept is better sandwiches made with good ingredients. People are just like, that's not a concept. That's a sandwich. What, yeah. what are you talking about? But I know, you know, from knowing Mario for a while, how hands-on and how expensive and how rigorous some of the R&D was for these sandwiches that yeah. then you sell for the price of just a fast, casual meal. So sort of tell me, like, how did you become successful doing this with sandwiches? No, I think you make a really good point. And I think this is part of, you know, when I have conversations with founders is you can have a really great product 
but most likely this product has already been created some way, somehow. So how are you going to differentiate yourself? I think the most important thing is to be able to create something with an emotional connection with your guests. Um, and so for Mario and I, even pre, you know, coming up with this idea, we knew we wanted to do sandwiches, but we wanted to create this neighborhood gathering place that sold happy or sells happy, I guess. And um, it's interesting because everyone says, well, what do you mean by selling happy? And it's, again, it's, creating a relationship with the people who come into their, your restaurant beyond just providing them with a meal. And, you know, and so we, we really thought about what does that mean? And we built the business with the foundation of this idea of selling happy to our guests, to our team and to our partners and vendors um, that we work with. And so we were very methodical in terms of how in each one of those um, kind of pillars or key stakeholders, how we do that. And then building that culture and training it so that, you know, for um, our front of the house, or we call them our hospitality team, uh, when you come in and, you know, we've had to make some changes, but instead of when, when you do your onboarding, when you come into, you know, the restaurant to train, you don't just come in to train with a handbook and an apron and go, welcome, here's your first day, here's a training manual, You'll, you know, have someone shadow you and then you're on, you know, to the next best, you know, like great, give great customer service. And that's how you're getting trained. Right. We actually brought we bring everyone in for a two day training where we really tell, you know, explain to people who we are, why we exist, why we do what we do. We train them and let them taste through all the food and talk about all the ingredients, about all the partners we use. And then we teach them the technical skills. But the most important is what we call I think um, we call it the points of contact. Um, so every station there is, there is a wow, and we've operationalized how you sell happy at each um, point of contact. And so that that way you really do get to understand, and we call it what's very Mendo. And I think we've instilled, I hope, that value um, uh, from you know the minute that you walk into that door to when you leave, there's that emotional connection with our guests beyond just you know, selling them a sandwich. And, you know, we, we tell our team members uh, when we're training them, what is our product? Most people will say, you guys sell sandwiches. We're like, no, we sell happy. And, you know, we aren't doing our job if we don't do that with our guests. So, and that's really been important to us. And I, you know, even through the pandemic, I think, again, that, that connection that we have, that relationship we have in each community and neighborhood we're in, you know, people really do have that affinity with the Mendo brand. So after Mendo got acquired, you had, you know, this beautiful problem that a lot of entrepreneurs have, which is just like, there's still lots of time for me. And yes, I can advise on this business and I can help this, but I've still got to figure out what I want to do with the rest of my life. So tell me a little bit about that and how that led you to where you are now. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because uh, we exited or transitioned out of the day to day in 2020, right during the heart of the pandemic. And so I actually had this bucket list of things I wanted to do because I just, you know, we never had time. I actually had a chef partner that I was already going to start working on a concept with. And then the whole entire world just kind of shut down. Um, and so, I, you know, I I, I I had a lot of time and um, what I've actually been doing and what came of that was I have been investing um, in a lot of uh, kind of growth startup companies and I've been investing, advising in um, primarily 
female owned and minority owned businesses. So it's been really great because I've still been able to be a part of something um, and support them financially, but also from a resource perspective. But what I've actually really been enjoying and, you know, it's it's a real job is being a mom to my two kids. So I, I know that sounds crazy because everyone's like, no, what are you really doing? I'm like, no, I, I'm enjoying spending time with my kids because I haven't had that in the last, you know, my son is now, he's going to be turning 17, 18 years of his life. It's, 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 uh, and he's going to college. So I, I'm cherishing every moment that I have with him and, uh, and my daughter. So it's been, it's been really great because I've met a lot of really great people, um, I've learned a lot about different businesses, not just the restaurant and food, you know, like you said, technology and CPG too. So <laughs> speaking of your kids, I'm really curious to, to talk about the entire, like everything that's happened in the past couple of years and all of these things that you've been thinking about, about your growing up experience, your identity, and then the formation of this particular task force with the mayor's yeah. office. When did it all come to a head for you? When was it, was there an aha moment where you were like, it's so important for us to unify now and and to really do something that really amplifies Asian voices? How how did the past two years contribute to that? Well, I think definitely um, after the Atlanta shooting, you know, it was just like that pivotal moment of what we we need to do something. Change has to happen. And I know for myself with my kids, just being in elementary school, when they were really young, they would get comments made to them all the time. There'd be racist jokes. There'd be, you know, the slanty eyes, whatever it is. I mean, we've got, we've, we've been down that path. And I've always been the person who's been super vocal. I'll go talk to the teachers. I'll go talk to the administration. I go and talk to the parents. You know, it's like we have to have these honest conversations. But there's like you saying, there was no unifying force because they would just kind of pacify you and go, oh, OK, we heard you. We'll take care of it. And I think, you know, during this th- these last two years, it's like, no, we we have to have a stronger voice. Our kids cannot just sweep this under the rug because they're always like, it's OK, mom, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. And I'm like, it's a big deal because this is not how, you know, this is not how people should be and treat each other. And so I think that pivotal moment was after the Atlanta shooting. I actually had a conversation with Angie um, from the mayor's office. And I said, what, what are we going to do about this? this? This can't go on. And on this side, I actually had another conversation with a mom who was dealing with something. She's at a private school here in L.A. where her, I think she, he's seven was being made fun of and there's these racist jokes being made to him. And I said to her, I go, you can't let it go. Got to go talk to the parents. And so then we actually formed another organization called Teach AAPI as well to really get into the school systems to infuse, um, you know, like how do we get uh, Asian, uh, you know, Asian culture, but really to get it into the school system from an academic standpoint, from a cultural standpoint. And so I, I think that was like the moment of our, our, it really needs to start with this next generation. And, you know, I do not want my kids to have to deal with this. I remember after the Atlanta shootings and all the hate crimes that were happening, my daughter said, I'm kind of scared. And it kind of broke my heart because I was scared. You know, I, I remember like I was scared for my parents, especially my parents who live up in Bay, the Bay Area. Um, I was scared for my kids. And I said, hey, when you guys go out, be really careful because you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know, you know, and at the same time, you got to learn how to my son is six, five. He's huge. And I go, but 
you cannot like just start swinging because you got to be careful and you, we got, we, we need to learn how to use our words as well. Um, and so, you know, it was just heartbreaking when you have to sit down with a 14 year old and a 16 year old to tell them about these things. And, you know, I, and I know there's other, you know, ethnic groups that have had to have this conversation too. And, you know, it just, it was like heartbreaking to have to have this conversation with my kids that you have to be careful that there might be someone out there who wants to hurt you because of what you look like. Um, so that's why, I mean, this work is just really important. I think representation showing that, you know, we, we are normal. We are part of the DNA and the fabric of this country, um, is just like something that is, you know, uh, very important to me in this next chapter in my life as well. Andy, as you ask about what, you know, what I'm up to. It is so shocking, isn't it? Because I think that we're all a similar age and, and, you know, actually we're all Taiwanese American and, I also came to the U.S. when I was about five. But, but the things that we dealt with growing up in the 70s and 80s, kids today are still dealing with. No. And it really took so much. It took so much for finally the Asian American community to stand up and to really, really have a unified voice. I've never seen anything like what we've witnessed over the past two years in terms of cohesiveness and real rallying and, and getting political and all of this. It's been so incredible to watch from coast to coast. And there's always a breaking point. And so much of it does happen in schools. It's not just, you know, other kids like making fun of like kids and like saying mean kid things. But in the in New York, you see that there was a very targeted campaign targeting mm-hmm. poor Asian students, trying to keep them out of certain spaces. And and a lot of it does happen in the education space. And it's so interesting to watch parents who are our age rally to really support their kids because, you know, we know what they went through. Yeah. I mean, we didn't have a voice back then. And, you, and I, you know, going back to that model minority myth, like we all wanted to be the perfect, you know, like child we want to be the perfect student and my parents always said don't rock the boat don't talk too loud don't speak up you know and my parents are always horrified by me because I'm like I will not stand for any of this you know but I didn't find my voice until I went to college I was that kid I never wanted to raise you know my hand I didn't want to speak out I didn't want to stick out um and I don't want my kids to feel like that um and, you know, even just the violence, all of it, it's just, it, it, it's really heartbreaking. And it's interesting being an entrepreneur as well. Um, going through corporate America, I didn't feel as much of a, like, oh, I'm Asian or I'm female as like a, a, an obstacle or a challenge. Somehow I, I felt like, you know what, I got here because of who I am. And maybe I was just young and I didn't know better. I think being an entrepreneur really opened up my mind, like, okay, wait, so I think they're disrespecting me, but the interesting part is I just can't filter if it's because I'm female, Asian, or both. And be having a partner who's a white male, it made it even harder because you know how people treated me and how people treated him so different. I still remember um, one of our clients and Mario and I were hustlers, like we were hands on, and we we took caterings, we delivered caterings. I took the order. And I was talking to a client, and she said to me you're so lucky you married the owner. And I was just like appalled. I was like, thank you. Oh yeah. That's yes. Thanks. Like, wow. Like how could someone say that to another human being? It was shocking. Um, But you know, and that's just like one little example that that's one that I can laugh at, but there's been others where you're just like, 
Wow. Like I, I've never, you know, I felt, I felt it more as an entrepreneur than I did as, um, you know, someone who worked for another company. And this is part of, I think, again, this work, there's so many Asian small business owners and business owners here in um, Southern California. And you now, especially during the pandemic, they've been hit so hard by it and they need resources. They need a voice. They need representation to really help them lift them out of what's happening right now. And so I think that's another part of this work that's so important that we need to do. Yeah. So let's amplify some people because, you know, I see obviously on Instagram and I hear about uh, restaurants and other Asian American entrepreneurs that you and Mario are supporting that you're having over, that you're mentoring, that you're talking to on the phone, you're just ordering food from them, et cetera. So quick fire questions. What are just some of your favorite restaurants in Los Angeles or, you know, favorite chefs or entrepreneurs at this moment? So, like I said, I'm Taiwanese. I love Taiwanese food. So I always got to live, give love to Din Tai Fung. I mean, they're just amazing, right? You, you always know what you're going to get. It's very consistent. But I've been enamored and just like addicted to Joy being like, she is amazing. I've eaten it two days in a row now, or two days in a row just last week. And I'm about to bring my son there. Their mapo tofu is to die for. So I'm just like, I'm, I'm in love right now with Joy. Um, I love Joseph Centeno. Uh, he is one of my favorite chefs. He's super creative. I mean, he builds, I mean, I just love how he builds everything from his scratch, literally like his restaurants from scratch. His food is amazing. Um, he's making jeans from scratch right now. Yeah. Tie dye, all that. Yeah. He's, he's amazing. So I love Joseph Barama. I love, I love the fact that he's really transitioning more toward plant-based um, you know, menu items and really kind of not cooking as much pork or meat. Um, so I think that's, a, I, I love him. Uh, I could go on and on. There's so many great restaurants, but you know, a couple that I'm, uh, that I've been helping and I, I just have so, I have mad respect for them is Jeannie Chang from Kai's. Um, she's amazing. And, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing what she does. She's about to open up a virtual kitchen in Venice as well. Um, and I just got introduced to Carol Kwan at Mama Masubi's. Um, and my kids love her masubis. We've missed her at our Studio City Farmer's Market. And so, um, I, you know, I, I, I'm a huge fan of her masubis. So there, there's just so many restaurants I could like go on and on. But those are just a couple that are always in our repertoire. So one recurring theme as Danica and I record this podcast, and as we sort of, you know, just work on other things together, is just you just brought up some things where, Taiwanese food, masubi. There's all these things that obviously already exist, but we're also in a position where people like you and us, we can encourage other people to try these things mm -hmm. because I think a lot of people are just worried. Oh, I can't do this. Somebody else is already doing Taiwanese food. I can't open a dumpling restaurant in this neighborhood. Somebody else already exists, right? But can you talk a little bit about just how you see that there's room and opportunity and you don't just see it. I mean, you're actively figuring out how to support it and help people build these yeah. businesses, right? Yeah. I mean, I think it goes back to a lot of his storytelling, right? And a lot of these um, owners, there's a beautiful story behind why they started, you know, their, their restaurants. And again, making that emotional connection with your guests and being able to tell that story and tying in the food. I think there's room for that. You know, it doesn't matter if this place is, you know, selling mapo tofu too, but you know, it, it goes back to the connection and the relationship that you're making. And there's always room for relationships 
um, I think, uh, especially with food. So uh, that's what, you know, for me, that, that's what compels me to go to restaurants. I could say this restaurant is delicious, um, but if there's soul behind it, if there's a person behind it with this beautiful, amazing story, I'm their number one biggest fan. That's great. So this is a quick fire. It's about the API community. So beyond mm -hmm. restaurants, is there anything that you want to shine a light on in Los Angeles right now that you just love? Well, I mean, there's so much to love about, um, I guess, Los Angeles. But one thing I'd love to shine a light on, and I touched upon it briefly, um, was the organization Teach AAPI. Uh, I, I think it's very similar to what we're doing, but we're going about it a different way. We're really starting with, uh, you know, younger kids and making sure that the curriculum, the culture of AAPI is being infused into the school system, independent and public. Um, and, you know, we're, we're, we're going about it, not just in, with that, with that kind of like light where it just has to be one dimensional. We're doing it through community building. Cause again, Southern California is huge. We have such a massive Asian population and we all like kind of know each other, but we don't. So we really want to bring the community together. And so that's another big you know thing that we're trying to do is how do we build this community that's kind of fragmented all over, but through uh, the families at these different schools, and they want to be a resource and a network. So Teach API is something that um, I'm a part of, and we're um, there's, I think, about eight or nine founding members, and we are just getting ready to launch. It's uh, Our website will be up and running middle of October. Um, go to our, uh, our Insta is uh, Teach API, so a lot of the information is there. We're going to hold our first community building event in November, it's going to be a Hawaiian holiday theme. So lots of food, entertainment, you know, prizes, games, and it's very family oriented. So, you know, again, that's just something that I'm really excited to be a part of. And I hope more families will join and, you know, kind of, again, rally behind really what we're doing is representing and or helping, you know, API community be represented and heard. Yeah, it's amazing that this is happening with schools now, right? Because if you think about, and I get it, like, you know, we did not grow up in a big city like Los Angeles, so it was obviously very different. But at my children's school, they just did this This Is Us celebration where they asked all mm -hmm. the families to basically just, like, bring in things or bring make art or things that just represented their culture. And I thought my kids went all out, you know, like... My son drew a bowl of rice and some food that he likes. And my daughter made this elaborate like panda thing on a quilt. And then I'm looking around like we did nothing. Somebody like <laughs> made a mural about South Korea. There's some oh Filipino God. family that had a whole thing that basically explained like what Tagalog is. There was a Vietnamese family that like brought food, you know, and were like dressed in traditional garb, like for, you know, basically a Vietnamese banquet. And I was just like, you're teaching me things that I don't know. But then the thing that was like really moving about this whole thing is that, yes, obviously there are a lot of Asian kids at this school. There's also a lot of, you know, kids of other nationalities. But my daughter, who's about to turn eight, started to understand because she has a lot of friends and she really wanted to talk to me about it. She goes, you know, I think this one friend is Korean and this other friend is Chinese and I'm Chinese, too, but I'm also Taiwanese and Filipino is something else. Right. And she really wanted to talk about this. So she's starting to think about the ways that like these things are the same, but they're also different. And it's kind of, you know, to me, just very illuminating to see like 
just it happened and me just being a small part of it and other people really, really wanting to push this hard. So I loved it. Yeah, I think that's amazing. And I love seeing this younger generation just be so proud, you know, want to tell people who they are. It's similar. Um, we have a API affinity club for the students at our school. And um, in the years past, not a lot of representation. I think it's like a handful of kids that the parents forced them to do so they could put it on their college resume, right? Um, they just had their first meeting and there was 40 kids. Now, now that doesn't sound like a lot, but you go from a handful to 40. I mean, it was pretty phenomenal. And they came home and they were like, there were so many of us, you know, and my daughter's like, I'm going out to recruit more, <laughs> yeah, you know? And so I just, it, it makes me so happy that there is pride um, because I think a lot of these conversations that are happening is helping propel them to have, you know, confidence and courage to come out and really be able to represent, um, you know, who they, you know, our community. And I, I just, I'm, it makes me really happy because change has to happen, not just from us as, you know, adults, but it really has to come from the kids. Well, this was fantastic. Ellen, you are a delight. We love you. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Um, I don't know if you, do you use social media? And if so, where can people I do. find you? I have Instagram. Um, it's just ellen.c.chen. So it's not that exciting. You see a lot of pictures of my family and foods that I eat. That's pretty exciting. Food is always exciting on Instagram. <laughs> Thank you so much for appearing on our podcast. We are so excited to see what Teach AAPI does next, and we can't wait for your launch. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to Los Angeles Asian American Stories. You can follow APILA on Facebook at API Los Angeles and on Instagram at API underscore LA. You can also find me, Andy Wong, on Instagram and Twitter at Andy Wong NYLA. And you can find my co-host Danica Lowe on Instagram and Twitter at Danica Lowe. We appreciate you being part of our community.